Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Ray Dirksen, the lead pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit myselfland.com. Last week, we addressed that problem of the devil and evil, and we talked about it. You can't fix it with education, legislation, or social programs. And, uh, and then we began to talk about what it takes. Now, um, like it or not, we are in a war, and the stakes are high. Ephesians 6, verse 11 to, 11 to 12 says, Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. Mature Christianity begins by knowing what God has done for you and knowing who you are in Christ. And we talk a lot about that, and it's foundational, but it's not enough. We are never mature until we accept our responsibilities to advance the kingdom of God. We are here to wage war against the devil's kingdom. And he's fighting whether you want to be engaged or not. And if you don't engage, he already beat you. And he beat us. Many, church, many churches, many Christians, they, they say, well, we're just not going to engage in the battle. There's no such thing. There's a battle going on for the souls of men and women, and it's going on every day, all the time. It never stops. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Ultimate victory, however, is promised by Jesus. Aren't you glad about that? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said in verse 18, uh, speaking to Peter after he made his confession of Christ, he said, and On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome. What did he mean by that? Well, in the ancient days, uh, they had walled cities, and they had gates in these walls. And if, uh, uh, and when, um, uh, the, every day, the gates would open when it was daylight, and then they would close at nighttime. The rulers of those ancient cities, uh, the, 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 the people who were, who were leading that particular city, often they were city-states, they would sit at the gates and that's where they would conduct their political business or uh, uh, their politics. And commerce would take place over there. A lot of commerce. Trading would take place over there. And so what Jesus is getting at there, because they understood that. I mean, that's the picture they had. That's how they, how they knew it was. He was saying that the rulers, same things at the gates. The gates of hell will not overcome it. Those rulers will not overcome the church. Despite their best efforts, the puppet tyrants of the centuries since have done their best to try to, to uh, remove and eradicate the church, but they haven't been able to do it. Now, God has given us defense, defensive armor, armor for defense in this war. We saw in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, that we have been given armor that's why he tells us twice, he tells us, put on the full armor of God. And uh, some of the armor pieces we'll be looking at uh, include the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, the feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. Uh, you and I need the armor to protect 
ourselves so that we don't fall victim to the devil. Um, and we'll be looking about the, uh, more about that in the coming weeks. So we need it, otherwise we'll become victim to Satan's attempts. Absolutely and completely, we will. Not we might, we will. We're no match for the enemy. No match at all. Apart from Jesus' armor. No match. And so we have to put it on. We'll be seeing what that looks like. But God has also given us weapons for offense. Verse 4 of, of chapter 10 in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And we'll be talking a little bit about what those strongholds are and that kind of stuff in, uh, starting next, next week. In the Ephesian armor passage, two offensive weapons are noted. People always say, well, Ephesians 6.10 to 18 is just about the, the armor. Well, it is, and I've called it the armor of God. And we're going to be talking about it. But it's also, it also includes a couple of offensive weapons. Take verses 17 and 18. It says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. We'll be looking at that a little bit later in the message. So there's two there, the sword of the Spirit and prayer, uh, or I should say all kinds of prayer. There are other weapons as well, but that will be for another series. And so maybe sometime if Chris allows me to ever preach again, then I will... <laughs> Um, thankfully, he has to go on vacation, which gives me a chance. Uh, but um, uh, then we're going to look in another series. We're going we're to focus more on the offensive weapons. While you need the armor for yourself. Now, what I'm going to say right now is, is really, really critical. Because I want you to see the importance of this. While you need the armor for yourself, you need the weapons to free others from the devil's grip and advance the kingdom of God. The armor doesn't work for the others. You need weapons to free them. You need the armor to keep yourself free and to keep from uh, falling victim to the Satan's schemes. And so, it's really important what we're talking about, the armor, because if you fall victim to the devil's schemes in your life, then you will not be able to go on the offensive and free someone else. You see that? So they're both critically important, and it's really critical that Christians understand what the armor is and that they understand what the weapons are and that they, they, they not only stand, understand what they are, but they know how to use them and use them effectively. And uh, because of, uh, now because of uh, Tuesday, what's on Tuesday, by the way? Yeah, prayer summit. Because of Tuesday's prayer summit, I am, uh, I'm, I'm skipping over those five armor pieces and I'm going straight to this offense, one offensive weapon today, and it's prayer. Because, uh, and then we're going to come back to the belt of truth next week. Okay? But they're, they're both needed, so there's no problem, and we were going to come to it anyway. The primary offensive weapon, though there's a list of them, the primary one is prayer. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. And we're going to begin by talking about the necessity of prayer. 
if we believe that God is sovereign, then why is it necessary to pray? The answer lies in God's original plan when he created man and woman. He gave Adam and Eve dominion over the entire earth and all creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, oh, they're coming up. And I know that because that wasn't changed from last night. So thank you, Jesus. Amen. Ha-ha. <laughs> and thank you, Adam and guys. Really appreciate it. And God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the, all the creatures that move along the ground. Even the psalmist echoed this. In Psalm 115, 16, he said, The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to man. And the Hebrew word there is that is translated given actually means to assign. He didn't give him as, uh, as ownership. He assigned him as in management, not in ownership, but in management. There's a big difference. God didn't give away ownership of the earth. He just assigned the responsibility. And we see that even in Genesis 2.15, what he says to Adam and Eve. when he, uh, uh, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Mankind, we are responsible for this planet. God put us in charge. He assigned management of it to us. As such, Adam was to represent the will of God here on earth. How things went on planet earth, for better or worse, depended on the first couple and their offspring. This is staggering. And it's a key reason for the necessity in understanding the necessity of prayer. Though God is sovereign and all-powerful, he limited himself concerning the affairs of this earth to working through human beings. He uses he works through human beings. He told us to pray. That's why he told us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Matthew chapter 6, you know, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer. The disciples said, teach us to pray. It says, then, uh, this then is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is where? In heaven. In heaven. He calls us to enact heaven's will on earth. Uh, that's what he calls us to do. Surely, he wouldn't want us to waste our time asking for something that was going to happen anyways, would he? I mean, the disciples asked, teach us to pray, and immediately Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. Immediately. He goes to the heart of the matter and says, this then is how you should pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Wow. He didn't, and then, of course, he, he told us we're supposed to pray for our daily bread. Did he say that? Yes. Church? He, he said it. Give us this day. They'd asked, how do we pray? Give us this day our daily bread. <clears throat> we're supposed to ask for it. Um, and he tells us, would... Uh, and yet he knows our needs before we even ask. Doesn't he know that we need bread? It says in another passage there in Matthew, in fact, same chapter, he says that he, even, he knows not only the hairs on our head, but he knows the sparrows, he knows what they need, he gives them food to eat as well. He knows that we have a need, and yet he says, I want you to ask. That's interesting. 
Didn't he tell us to ask that laborers be sent into the harvest? Matthew 9, verse 38. But doesn't the Lord of the harvest want it more than we do? He does. And yet, he, he, he commands us to ask for it. He is working through individuals on this planet. Now, there's a, there's a I think, uh, you know, there's, there's somewhat of a mystery in all of that. And I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, we can't always understand every single thing. We can understand what he's saying. We don't understand why he chose to do it that way. But the one thing we do know is he made us human. He doesn't want us just to be robots. He gives us wills to choose. We've talked about that uh, before. Let's take the story of Elijah. That's a good, that's a good story. According to James 5, Elijah prayed for the rain to stop, and it stopped for three years. A drought ensued, so bad that King Ahab, in the north, uh, you know, king of the northern kingdom, he was so angry, he was, he was hunting out Elijah to kill him because he knew it was on account of Elijah. Isn't that instructive? This wicked, evil king knew it was because of Elijah that they were experiencing, he actually believed that because of Elijah, they were experiencing a, a drought, which is why God had hidden him with the widow at Zarephath, first, in, first at, the, uh, at the brook and then with the widow. That's why he, he wasn't even in northern Israel. He was hiding. God was hiding him so that the king couldn't kill him. After the three-year drought, God said to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So after the contest on Mount Carmel, you know, where, uh, where the prophets of uh, Baal, they, uh, 400 of them, and, uh, you know, they prayed down fire, uh, like Elijah had this, uh, this idea from the Lord, you know, put on a contest, and uh, which God is the greater one? And 400 of them, they got on their altars, they cried out, they cut themselves, blood was flowing, no, no rain. And then Moses, I mean uh, Elijah, he, he builds this altar and he gets it soaked with water on purpose. He soaks it, oh, with barrels of water. Oh, another one. Is that enough? No, no, another one. Put, put more water on. And then he prays this simple little prayer and fire comes down from heaven. Amazing. According to verse 1, which we see there, whose idea... And will was it to send the rain? And because after that, after that contest, then Elijah prayed, and seven times, and then rain came. Did it? It certainly did. Now, whose idea and will was it in the first place? Yeah, he said, "Go to Ahab, and I will. God will send rain on the land." That's what that's what God said. But it required. Elijah's perseverance in prayer to enact God's will here on earth. Take a look at what James 5, 17 to 18 says about that. Elijah was a man. <laughs> he was a man, what? Just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. A man just like that, like us. Are you serious? Wasn't Elijah 10 feet tall? I'm sure. In our minds, Elijah is about 10 feet tall, at least. 
But James says he was a man just like us. Did he ever sin? Was he ever discouraged? Did he ever want to quit? And the answer is yes to all three. In fact, the very next chapter has him running for his life and saying, God, why don't you just kill me? <laughs> After great victory. Yeah, he was just like us. Does that, does that ring a bell? The Scripture says yes, and yet he accomplished this incredible feat. How? He prayed earnestly. What does that mean to pray earnestly? Well, if we go back to the story, uh, after this, uh, you know, the fire came down, and he, he had uh, 400 of the prophets of Baal that were all slaughtered, and uh, then he went to pray for this rain that God said he wanted to send. Well, God said it. Why don't we just sit back and wait for God to do it? He's already determined he's going to do it, isn't he? No. God had just told him what he was going to do or what he wanted to do, but it was up to Elijah to enact it. How did he enact it? Through prayer. He went to prayer and he prayed. When he was finished praying earnestly for rain, he sent his servant to the bluff to look out across and, uh, and the servant came back and he said, did you see any clouds? No. So what did Elijah do? He went back to prayer. And he prayed again. And then he sent, his, he sent a servant to look for a cloud. And the servant came back. And still no cloud. He prayed a third time. Same result. And then a fourth. And then a fifth. And then a sixth time. And he prayed the seventh time. And he sent out a servant. And a servant came back and said, Elijah, you won't believe it. There's a cloud. It's the size of your fist. You know one of those little white puffy ones? Those nice little cute puffy ones? That's all it was. And look at Elijah's response to that report of a little tiny fluffy white cloud that has no rain in it, the size of a fist. Verse number 44. Go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. There's a deluge coming, and you better run. Are you serious? A little puffy white cloud, flee before the downpour stops you? This is hilarious. I put in my notes, LOL. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. It's hilarious, or, or is it? Or is it? Let's look at verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with, cloud, with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Listen, this isn't just a cute story about fire coming down from heaven onto a soaked altar or about praying for a drought or praying for rain. No, this was about advancing kingdom, and I'll show you. The northern kingdom of Israel was far from God. That's why in the next chapter you have Elijah so discouraged. He said, I'm the only one left. Now, was it true? No. God said, there's, there's still 7,000 left in Israel. But is 7,000 a lot in a nation? No, it's not a lot. But the point was that as far from everything that Elijah could tell, basically... The nation was shot. 
Spiritually, she was away from God. And God was, in answer to these prayers, God was enacting things on earth to advance his kingdom and turn his people back to God. That's why the drought. It, it, it got everybody's attention. Then God said, now go back to Ahab and tell him there's going to be rain. And by the way, put on a contest. So he puts on a contest, and the fire comes down. And this is the part that I intentionally didn't say before, but now I'll say it. Look what happens uh, when the fire comes down and consumes the altar. The whole thing was to demonstrate the power of God to the people. And the result was, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, What? The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Wow. Do you think kingdom advanced that day? Yeah, 400 prophets were killed. A whole bunch of people turned to God. The kingdom of God advanced, and it advanced because there was someone... It was an Elijah who was listening to the will of God every step of the way, and he was following through on it, and he worked in conjunction with God's will, and when he prayed, God enacted his will. Again, there's a mystery to that all. I, I don't fully comprehend that. I, don't, I, I doubt that we'll, we'll understand that this side of heaven. God, well, why, did, why did you exactly work that? I've, talked, I've, I've preached on eight purposes of why uh, uh, for prayer. And there is some of that, but still there's this lingering question why he did it that way. But the question isn't whether he does it. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And that's what it was all about. It was all because Elijah interceded that the kingdom was advanced in the hearts of many not just one, but many. When Abraham interceded on behalf of Lot, God spared him from the destruction that, uh, that came on Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember? Uh, the angel said, uh, uh, you're gonna have, you know, Sarah's going to have a child next year. But, and, then, and then God starts to have this little discussion with himself. And he says, Abraham's righteous, and I'm going to do great things through him. Should I keep from him what I'm actually about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah? And finally, he tells Abram what he's going to do. Abram's horrified because he realizes his nephew Lot is there together with his family. Abram immediately goes to intercession. And he begins to intercede on behalf of Lot. And this is how he does it. He says, well, God, uh, surely, surely a, a, a God like you will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Suppose there are 50 righteous in Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you then destroy it? Destroy them with, with the wicked? And God's answer says, no, for 50, I'll, I'll, I won't do it. Well, how about if they're, you know, he's, he figures I did pretty good at 50. I should have I lowballed. <laughs> he said, well, how about if there were 45 and then, well, no, I won't. If this, well, how about 40? And he just keeps working it down. And in the end, Lot and his family are saved. Well, of course, his wife turned back, but, uh, I mean, that was her choice. But Lot was saved and his daughters because Abraham, what? Interceded. Because he prayed. It's an offensive weapon. 
in the heavenlies. And things start to happen. When Moses interceded, God changed his mind about blotting out Israel in the wilderness. When Daniel interceded, God set things in motion to deliver Israel from Babylonian captivity. Uh, captivity. After, um, after Daniel read what the prophet Jeremiah had said about 70 years, looks at his watch, click. The calendar on his watch said 70 years, and he goes to prayer. And God set about doing something about it. We'll look, about, uh, look at that a little bit later. God will not eliminate the middleman. We are the middlemen. Some things will not move unless we pray. Apparently, our prayers do make a difference, a huge difference. Someone once said, and I can't remember who, when we work, we work. Maybe it was Andrew Murray. When we pray, God works. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. But we have a problem in the church today, which Isaiah faced in his day. Isaiah 59 described a society, describes a society as we know it today, unrighteousness, injustice, evil in great proportions. And I want you to note God's reaction to the whole thing. The Lord saw it. And it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to what? Intercede. No one to intercede. The whole world, Christians too, see terrible things going on and ask, why isn't God doing something about this? But God is astonished, even shocked, that there's no one interceding. And he asks, where are the Christians? How can they be doing nothing? He moves in the affairs of mankind according to the degree and according to how specifically we pray. He is fully willing and he is full of love. He wants to do something about it. We must know that without a doubt, prayer changes things. God even tells us what to pray. He even tells us what to pray. We saw that in the story of Elijah. We listen. We know how to listen here at Southland, right? He tells us what to pray. He confides in those who are willing to obey him. He tells them secrets. He'll, he'll, he'll confide in you and tell you things about your children that are wayward. He'll confide in you, and he'll tell you things about that marriage partner of yours. And he'll tell you how he wants you to pray. He'll tell you how he wants you to war, and he'll tell you what to do. He'll give you the strategies. I, I, I mean, I remember that as we were raising our teenagers, and I remember my wife and I getting into... into um, a disagreement, very strong disagreement, probably the strongest disagreement we've ever had, about how we were going to respond to one of the children. She said, I think we should do it this way. I said, I think we should do it this way. So we went to God, and he showed us how. Then we prayed according to that, and we responded to what he said, and we did it that way. In the end, that's exactly what worked. And it wasn't my way, it was Fran's way. 
One time. <laughs> okay, you don't believe it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's almost always that way. The Lord's Prayer is not so much a prayer as it is, you know, the, the disciples said, well, then Lord, teach us to pray. But it's not so much a prayer as it is an explanation of how the earthly realm does business on earth. Wow. Matthew 6, verse 9 and 10. This then is how you should pray, O Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He wants us to pray for His will to be done in every area of our lives, in our family, in our friends, our acquaintances, in uh, cities, in countries, in every situation. He has given us a job of being watchmen of prayer. Isaiah 62 said, I've posted watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourself no rest. See, that's what he means by watchmen, those that call on the Lord. Those are the intercessors. Those are the ones praying. And give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. We are to ask and keep on asking until he answers or until he tells us that, he, that we have asked enough. Give him no rest. I wonder how many of us quit at the sixth time. I wonder how, in eternity how many, you know, I wonder if I'll find out. How many times, I, on certain situations, I quit praying at the sixth time? If only I'd prayed one more time. Is that true? Elijah prayed through. We're not to pray once. We're not to pray twice. We're to pray until. We're to pray through, as they used to say. That's how we're supposed to. That's how we're supposed to pray. Did you know God desires to answer our prayers? He requires us to pray. He works through us, but he's absolutely eager to answer our prayers. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus was trying to make that point, and so he told a story. And it's a very fascinating story. It's even a little bit humorous in it. There's a little bit of humor in it. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him and he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Okay, we're gonna, uh, I'm going to put up a schematic here. I, I drew that by myself, by the way. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> Jesus, and, and I'm doing it because there's so many pronouns in this particular passage that you, you get confused. I, I think in one verse I counted seven pronouns, and finally you're not when he keeps saying he, his, him, you're not sure which one of these three it actually is. Okay, so to, to help sort it out, I've got the three up there on a schematic so you can see it in your mind. Jesus is asking, can you imagine going to a neighbor, asking for help to entertain a friend and getting such a response? The Middle Eastern responsibility for his guest is legendary. The guest arrives at the host's home late in the evening, but the host has nothing or nothing adequate to place before his guest. So, um, 
The crucial element in this initial portion of the parable, because in just a few moments we'll look at Jesus' teaching about it. Now he says something about this parable, but right now we're looking at the parable itself. And the crucial element in this portion of the parable is that the guest is the guest of the community, not just the individual. We have to understand that. Um, it's not like our culture. If a guest came to the village, the whole village took responsibility for that guest, even if that guest was in one particular home. They owned that, and that's why their uh, hospitality is so legendary. The guest must leave the village with a good feeling about their hospitality. So when the host goes to his sleeping neighbor, the host is simply asking the sleeper to fulfill his duty uh, to, be, uh, to the guest of the village. Like, if... if, if if somebody came to me in the middle of the night and they wanted something to eat and I didn't have it and I went next door to my neighbor and woke them up, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't be particularly happy with me. That's not their problem. You know, go to 7-Eleven. You don't get your 10-buck milk there or whatever uh, that you need. Uh, but leave me alone because I'm not responsible for that. But not in Middle Eastern culture. That's important that we understand it. So, refusal in such a case was unthinkable. Jesus continues the parable. And can you imagine that the neighbor offers such silly excuses about sleeping children and a barred door? The bolt isn't very heavy. Just go and unlock it. <laughs> the door is shut. Yes, I know the door is shut, but unlock it. Well, uh, my children are asleep. Yeah, and the way you're, t and the way you're calling back... I can't come now because the door is shut and my kids are asleep. I don't want to wake them up. <laughs> That's exactly the response that Jesus hears had. <laughs> That's the exact response. They were laughing. They said, this is, these are lame excuses. Jesus had good humor, eh? He could come up with funny stories. The hypothetical excuses are so unthinkable that they're, they're that um, humorous. Then Jesus bring, brought home the lesson of the parable saying this, verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And there's all those pronouns there. Whoa, 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 he, 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 I'm him. Uh, the significance of this passage hangs on the meaning of the key word anadia, which has come to have two meanings. So some, uh, there's the shameless, which is the negative uh, kind of connotation. Well, it is negative. And persistence, which is, the other, uh, which is the other side of the equation. Many commentators have gone with persistence. But there's reasons why this isn't necessarily so, the meaning attached to this word turns the direction of this parable, so it's important for us to get this right. With one ex only one exception from ancient Greek and the Greek Old Testament translation, this word is translated as a negative, like shame, never meaning persistence. So that's one point against it. And in fact, it wouldn't have even made sense culturally because a guest in the Middle East wouldn't have had to ask but once. Isn't that true? You just asked once, boy, you got what you wanted. So persistence would, have, would not have made sense in this, particular, in this particular parable, though Jesus does teach about persistence. In fact, in the, in the poem that falls, uh, follows, he does teach persistence. That's a different lesson he's teaching. But in this case, he, 
It's not persistence that he's trying to get at. He's trying to get at something else. Uh, so the point isn't that the guest receives because of persistence. Back to the uh, schematic now. His impudence is referring to the sleeper and what he will do. The sleeper knows that the borrower must gather up the essentials for the banquet from the various neighbors. And so he goes from one house to the next, the, the host, the, the, the middle person there. He goes, he'll go to the first uh, house and he'll say, uh, do you have some utensils? Yes, here, can I borrow them? Uh, do you have this kind of food? Yes, okay, I'll take that. And so on and so forth because the guest is a guest of the whole village, no problem. The sleeper who's laying there knows that if he refuses to help, he's in big trouble with the village. And the host is going to go to the next house, and when he gets there and he said, you know what, I asked them for so, such and such, I know they have it. And he refused to uh, get, even get up and help me, and uh, what a shameful thing to do. And the other person will agree. And then you go to the next house, and the next house, and the next house. By the morning, when the, when the sleeper gets up and goes into the village, everybody knows that's the one. And they're going, shame on you. And the sleeper knows this. He runs that all through his head. He knows this very well. And so, because of shamelessness, is it because he loves the guest? Yes or no? No, not because he... Is that what's motivating? Oh, I love this guest. I want to help my neighbor. No. It's because he doesn't want to be shamed. And so because he doesn't want to be shamed, he begrudgingly gets up unlocks the door, wakes up his kids, gives him whatever he needs, so that the next day, the other people in the village will say, oh, good job, really good job. You, you, you were really good. Yeah, I know, I know. Did it out of the goodness of my heart, which isn't true at all. He wants to avoid being shamed. So what's, what is Jesus saying through this parable? If you are confident of having your needs met when you go to such a neighbor... You know, the one that's sleeping, um, who doesn't really want to get up, but he'll do it because he doesn't want to be shamed. You can count on that. If you are confident of having your needs by such a neighbor at night, how much more can you rest assured that when you take your request to Father in heaven, that he will give you what you ask. And he loves you Amen. on top of it all. He's motivated by love. The other one's motivated by shame, so you know you're going to get what you want. He says, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you more than you can ever comprehend, how much more will he give you what you ask? Isn't that true? Amen. Church? Yeah. He wants to answer your prayers. He desires it far more than you desire your prayers to be answered. He desires to answer them. He's sitting there with his, you know, his legs dangling over the precipice of heaven, and he's just waiting for a, for a request. Not self-centered things, but things that will help in his kingdom. That's amazing. Well, we've got time just for... One last thing to talk about here, and that's the kinds of prayers. Because remember in that passage of Ephesians 6, it says, um, And pray 
on all occasions, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Lots of requests, but all kinds of prayers. So let's just very briefly survey some of the kinds of prayer there are, okay? And I won't necessarily always touch on them because it's most important, but because I just feel like I should share some things about that this morning, if the Holy Spirit wants. 1 Timothy 2, 1 says, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. First it was all saints, now it's on all men. Every significant event or movement in church history was birthed in prayer. I'm going to tell you something. Southland isn't what she is, whatever she's become so far, because of clever leadership. That's not why. Oh, yes, you have to do certain things the right way and stuff like that. She has become what she has so far. Has she reached her potential? Has she reached her, what she's supposed to become in maturity? No, not even close. But what she has become, she has become because behind the scenes there are prayer partners and there, there are intercessors that pray and pray and intercede and intercede on behalf of this church and on behalf of me and the leadership. That's why. That's an incredible thought. And church renewal, I mean, you, you look at it, it's so impossible. It's crazy. Try doing it. It's impossible. Whatever it has become in a short time, is because it was birthed in prayer behind the scenes. Uh, I mean, I you know this. Oh, I mean, there's four to five thousand people that attend here, and I can't have everybody over at my house. Uh, I wish I could. I, I, I'm serious about that. But guess who I had over for a barbecue the other night? The prayer partners and the intercessors. They. You don't notice them. You don't even know who they are here at Southland. You don't even know who they are. Well, you know Grace. Maybe you know Carla. Maybe you know Doris. But most of them you don't know who they are. We invited them over. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to lose them. I, I, I want to suck up to them. I know how this thing works. I believe it so intrinsically. Petitions. Petitions are simply requests made to God. Supplications are continuous petitions. Let's look at this matter of thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2 said, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul said it to the Flip, uh, church at Philippi too. He said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving, thank you. Let your request be made known to God. That's interesting. What, what's, he, what's he talking about? He's, he's really talking like this. Oh God, I thank you. That you, you you've, you've given me this topic that you want me to speak on. Thank you, Lord. And, and I'm going to do it, but I need your empowerment. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to bring revelation. You're going to have to open the eyes of our people to want that, and I thank you that you're going to do that. And I thank you that because of it, 
many more are going to come to the prayer summit on Tuesday. Thank you, Lord. I, I praise you, Lord, that you are doing that. Uh, I thank you that you do immeasurably more than all I am asking or thinking now. And though I ask this, I know I'm going to get that. That's what he's talking about. Do you know why? Because when you pray like that, faith wells up in you. When you go to God, oh, dear God, please, please, pretty please. Would you, would you, would you, would you, would you, would you, would you? You're praying out of poverty and lack, and, and, and lack of faith. But when you pray with thanksgiving, you're thanking him in advance for what he's going to do. Does that take faith? <laughs> yeah, it does. And you know what? He responds in kind to that kind of praying. He loves that. But it does more than that. Uh, in Second Chronicles 20, Je Jehoshaphat was facing an enemy. Instead of sending out soldiers with swords and spears against them, he sent out those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attires. They went, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And they began to sing and praise. The Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. Responding to their praise, God sent angels to defeat the foe. Every request should be made with continual thanksgiving. Such praise is from, uh, from here and it drives back the powers of darkness. You know, Psalm 139, verse 5 and 6 says, May, Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy in their beds. May the praise of God be in their mouths and a double-edged sword in their hands. You know what? Quite often we see worship and uh, here, like I'm talking corporate worship and, and uh, teaching as uh, something for ourselves. And it is. It, 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 does, it does edify and builds up and stuff, and it worships God and that kind of stuff. But we have no idea, and we don't realize that it's doing way more than that. It's actually driving back the powers of darkness. Take a look at the very next verse that the psalmist gives it in verse 7 and 8. I just gave you 5 and 6. Here comes 7 and 8. To for what reason? To inflict vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with fetters, their nobles with shackles of iron. That's why. It's one of the reasons why, when we come to worship here, this idea of just sitting there or standing there like this and just waiting to get over so we can get to the main thing of the teaching, we have completely missed it. And I'm not saying because you have your hands in the pocket, but usually what you're doing with your hands in your pocket usually uh, indicates what's also in the heart. Not really grateful, not really, pr not, not really. Uh, you know, you just kind of watch everybody do their thing. And we don't realize we have an opportunity to praise God. And when we do it, and we unite in praise and thanksgiving, it actually drives back the powers of darkness. It's part of the way that we pray. Paul said, with all kinds of prayers, we're supposed to do it. This is one of them. We're committed uh, to that. So we exist to advance the kingdom that way. Here's entreaties. That's a, that's a third way. And I, again, I don't have time to touch very much on all of them, is ministry and prayer on behalf of other individuals, cities, countries, businesses, groups, situations, 
making specific requests of provision for provision and protection and direction or blessing, those kinds of things. You know, uh, the powers of darkness would have us so focused on our own problems that we don't intercede for others. So many prayer meetings go awry because they're only about ourselves. Dear God, I got a, I got a sore on my elbow. My elbow just isn't, you know, would you please put a little grease on that for me because I, I just want to feel better. There's nothing wrong with praying for healing, but when our focus is all about us, Satan and the enemy are happy. Just keep on praying for yourself. Have a good prayer meeting. He didn't mind that. What he really troubles him is when we begin to intercede for others and other situations. Because he knows how powerful that is. We entreat God for those kinds of things. At all costs, he wants, us to, pre uh, wants to prevent us from doing that. Here's a fourth one, binding and loosing. Matthew 16, 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you bind, uh, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We cut off the enemy from the object or person of our prayers, binding, the situation, and we pray down the kingdom on the object by loosing it. We loose by praying for the specifics of the kingdom to fall upon the person or situation like conviction or grace or love and revelation. If somebody's caught in a sin, because Paul talks about that uh, to the church at Galatians in chapter 6, he says, if, brothers, if one of you is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual uh, should restore him gently, but watch yourself or you also may be tempted. When you're praying for a situation like that, sometimes people, Christians, will do the stupidest sinful things. And everybody around them can see what they're doing. And they're horrified. They can't believe it. It's because, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said, the God of this age has blinded, blinded the eyes of so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And he blinds people. So then, how do you pray? You pray, you loose by praying, you bind Satan, but then you pray and, and you say, God, bring revelation to them. Open their eyes. Bring conviction, grace, mercy, love, so that they'll respond to your overtures. That's loosing. We bind the demonic forces from working and influencing, and we loose angels and God's spirit to influence and work. In the Old Testament, Daniel read Jeremiah's prophecy that we referred to before, uh, that Israel, captive in Babylon, would be released after 70 years. Daniel immediately went to prayer and fasting and confession, and look what happened. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel the man I had seen in the earlier vision came to me in a swift light. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, as soon as you began to pray... A word went out, which I've come to tell you. We bind the forces of evil and what they're doing, and we loose in the, uh, in the heavenlies, we loose God, or I mean, uh, he, he sends angels on our behalf in response to the prayers, and they come and they do some of the damage. Because you see, you can't win it in, on the ground until you've won it in the air. 
in the heavenly realms. That's why when Moses had his arms up, as long, and, and uh, Aaron and Hur were holding up his arms, as long as they were up, Joshua was winning on the ground. When they came down, meaning he was so tired he couldn't pray anymore, then Joshua began to lose. Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers, against spiritual forces in heavenly realms. That's what we're fighting against. And they're manipulating mankind. They're blinding them and they're manipulating them for their own purposes. And mankind doesn't even know it. Christians who are caught up in sins don't even know it. They're entrapped. But when we pray and we bind the enemy forces and we loose angels and the Holy Spirit to influence the situation, that's what he's talking about. Same thing happened in the New Testament. King Herod had Peter and James arrested. He executed James. The next day he was going to execute Peter. It says, but the church went to prayer. They prayed all night. And during the night, as they were praying, God commanded, in response to their prayers, God commanded an angel. Angel shows up in the prison. It says in, uh, I think I have this one, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side, woke him up, Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. And the angel led him through locked gates and out to freedom. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? God has, has those angels at our disposal if we'll pray. Then he releases them to do tremendous damage against the enemy. Is that an encouragement? Is that amazing that you and I have that at our command? I don't mean in direct command. I, I don't mean we can go and command angels to go do this and that. No, no, the scripture doesn't teach us that. We pray to God, and God then takes care of those kinds of things. But he does it in response. Fasting is another one. We don't have more time to talk about that. I'll just uh, talk about one last one, and then we're done. Uh, because this one never gets touched and that is tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 2. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. And there's four benefits I'll touch on. First one is to edify ourselves. One who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Now I want to ask you a question. Is it true that the Bible, that when we meditate on the Bible, it builds us up? Yes or no? Yeah, we talk about it all the time. Absolutely. Is it true According to Hebrews chapter 10, that we are also not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because we need the fellowship that builds us up as well. Yeah, and Ephesians chapter 4 talks about that, uh, you know, expands on that. You know what's interesting? It says tongues are for the same thing. You say, well, I mean, this is hocus pocus. I'll go with the meditation and the other thing. Yeah, then you pick and choose what you want out of God's word. He said that. This wasn't invented by charismatics. I remember one day in the old auditorium right here, uh, I was so tired and exhausted. Now, now looking back, I'm not sure if the exhaustion was more from the schedule or was it because the enemy was fighting so hard, maybe that kind of exhaustion, spiritual exhaustion, or a combination of the two, I don't know. But I was about to get up and preach and I could... I was so tired. I was so emotionally drained. 
And I remember saying, God, I got a message here, but I got no fire. I've prayed, I've done, but I'm just, I'm just done. And immediately a thought came. I prayed, a thought came to my mind. Why don't you, why don't you pray in tongues? And it was praise and worship time. So I began to pray in tongues as the worship team was leading us in worship. I'll tell you that within five minutes, I was, I, I was, I was completely re revived and refreshed. Within five minutes. I was so excited, I could hardly wait to get up and preach. There was so much fire inside of me, I could hardly stand it. That's what he's talking about. You, you say, ah, oh, this sounds like just cute little mamby-pamby. No, no, just, just think about this for a minute. You know, we think about everything, we look at everything through the lens of Western Christianity. And boy, I'm going to tell you, Western Christianity is not the main thing in the world today. I want you to think about where they're being persecuted. Think about the Middle East. Think about those that are in prison. They're getting martyred at rates never seen before in the history of the church. So think about somebody who's languishing in prison, maybe he's suffering there for 10 years, doesn't have a Bible, not allowed to have one, and doesn't have a Christian nearby for five years, 10 years. Do you think that person needs to be built up, yes or no? Can they get it through fellowship? No. Can they get it through the Word? No. And God gives them this. Is that amazing? We're talking about spiritual warfare here. We're talking about survival. We're talking about fighting on behalf of others. This is really, really critical. How about to unveil mysteries? Verse 2 says, anyone who speaks in a tongue utters mysteries. I remember years ago, here at Southland, Fran uh, prayed in tongues to confirm a major decision I was, uh, I was making to shuffle several staff. She, she prays often for me in tongues. I'll get stuck in, in message prep for an hour or two. It's probably a spiritual thing. And I, I literally cannot get one word or one thought. I'll phone her. Sometimes she'll phone Juliet. And then they'll pray in tongues. Within five minutes, I'm just writing, and it's just pouring through. It's amazing. That's warfare. That's prayer. And it works. But one time, uh, I had a major, I'm watching my watch here very carefully, uh, and I had this major staff shuffle to make. And that, that can be tricky. You got to move this, you got to move that, this, and not everybody's going to be, you know, how are they going to respond and, 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 and all of that. And uh, so, she, uh, as she was praying, listening, and praying in tongues, the Lord gave her a vision, a large underground vault. Someone was carefully turning the combination while listening through an earpiece for the sound of pins moving into alignment. First dial to the left, then several notches to the right, then one to the left, you know, that kind of thing. Suddenly, the sound of tumblers as the door unlocked. And she told me that, and she was confused. She said, what? I, I, I don't know why, when I'm praying in tongues about... This staff shop, you know, it's, it's complex. And I would have expected that he was going to give me a, maybe a picture of a puzzle, a really complex puzzle or something like that. But why this thing about the click, click, and you got to be careful and listen careful and the tumblers fall and all that kind of stuff. So she went back to prayer and asked the Holy Spirit, why? Because obviously there had to be something significant about that. And the Holy Spirit said that, Though it was, it, was a, it was complex, and it was like a puzzle, 
and that's why that you had to get just the right combination, but it had to be handled with great care. You wouldn't have got that in a puzzle picture, but you would have got it in the vault picture. You see that? She got that in praying in tongues. We're talking about warfare here. Benefit three, to expand our worship. Well, we talked about thanksgiving and stuff, so I'm going to go to benefit four, and then that's it, and to, to enable warfare and healing. Jackie Pullinger, in her book, she would always get drug addicts to pray in tongues, and then they'd be set free from the demonic spirits that were holding them captive in that. And so, we come to the end of our message on prayer. Tuesday is prayer summit. The weekly challenge, we're, I'm challenging you to memorize this particular passage because it'll help you to remember the pieces of the armor that you're going to need to protect yourself from becoming a victim of Satan. Because if you don't, you will become a victim. Not, not maybe. No, 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 no. You already are or you will if you don't put that armor on, uh, know what it is and put it on properly. And the other thing is we need those weapons so we can free others in advanced kingdom because that's what he's called us to, to do. Amen? This Tuesday is a prayer summit. And with all that is in my heart, I'm calling the church to prayer. If this church, as I transition the lead pastor part over to Chris this September, if this church ever slows down in this matter of prayer. In fact, it needs to step it up considerably. It'll never be a great church. In fact, it'll probably splinter and become all kinds of things. Prayer is key. That's what we need for the war that God has called us into. Amen? Father, we ask that by your Spirit. I asked you, and I ask you with thanksgiving, thanking you that you will Take these th thoughts from your word, from your spirit, and drive them deep into our hearts, mine included. I'm thanking you for the difference it's going to make in this. I thank you that the level of prayer is going to increase here at Southland, and that because of it, your kingdom will be advanced through your wonderful people here in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.